Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Oh, Wendy, I am so excited about this week. I'm so excited about this week, too. And that is because just watched the horror movie Veronica last night that we're going to be discussing on our Patreon hangout this Wednesday. Yeah, I watched it as well. And I got to say, there's a lot to talk about. There's a ton of stuff to talk about. I also did some research behind the real story, the Velasca case is what they call Ooh. it in Spain, that is, uh, they based the idea of the movie Veronica on. Cool. So uh, we're going to be talking about the fact versus fiction on the movie. We're going to be seeing what everybody thinks about it. And we're going to be talking to the coolest people we know, and that is the See You on the Other Side Patreons. Now, if you guys Yay. want to be if you guys want to be part of that, please uh, check it out othersidepodcast.com slash donate, and you have a chance to check it out for a little while coming up this Wednesday night, seven p.m. Central Time. Hang out with Wendy, me, all of the cool Patreons of the See You on the Other Side community, and you can try it out for a little bit, see if you like it, and then maybe next month you'll join us a Patreon. And be able to suggest topics, watch a movie with us, all the kind of fun stuff that we do with the very, very exciting Sunspot and See You on the Other Side Patreon community. So I just wanted to get that out of the way because I'm so excited because it's it's already Hangout Week and Hangout Week is my favorite week of the month. I'm excited too, Mike. It's been one heck of a Monday, so I'm I'm. Glad that what I have to look forward to is only a couple days yeah. away. Yeah, so. so you had you had some technical <laughs> issues, right? So didn't you text me that you're like sitting down in your in your closet? Yeah, basically on the floor in the closet uh, because <laughs> I had to move my whole recording setup out of my studio so that I could have reception to be able to talk to you. So doing a little mobile studio here. So you're not the but you're not the first person to record from the closet. Ryan Sprague from the Somewhere in the Skies podcast, he also when we interviewed yeah. him, he was talking from inside his closet. Well, you know, a lot of voiceover artists use their closet as their recording studio because all the clothing in there absorbs everything really nicely. So <laughs> Oh, that's exciting. I'm not complaining, but you know, having to uproot the whole studio because of a lack of internet was not my favorite thing to do on a Monday. So. Okay, well, <laughs> we won't make you sit in the closet too long, Wendy. We're going to introduce today's guest. Yes. I talked to her last week. She's got a brand new book out called Inside the Lightning Ball, a scientific study of lifelong UFO experiencers. She is herself a UFO experiencer. She's got a lot of great stories. Um, she's met with guys like Bud Hopkins and uh, Dr. John Mack, like old school 90s, late 80s, early 90s uh, UFO researchers that she talks about. Um, she's a really interesting lady, and she's a doctor, Dr. Arena McCammon-Scott. And I just thought it was funny because every time I was tempted to call her Dr. Scott, all I could think of is the Dr. Scott character from Rocky Horror. And so I just <laughs> nice. kept on saying, and uh, just kept on making me laugh when I was thinking of talking to Dr. Scott from the movie. Um, she's also written UFOs Today, 70 Years of Lies, Misinformation, and Government Cover-Up. On a more scientific side, she does have a, a doctorate in veterinary medicine. Females going ape, generating life and civilization. And God is a woman. All right. Yeah, the origins of Yahweh, 
uh, Allah and the Gods of India. So anyway, she's an author. She's been on Coast to Coast before. She's also a lifelong UFO experiencer. And that's what makes it exciting. That's what we talk about in this episode. We're talking about the personal experiences that she has had and the UFO journey that she's had. So Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Let's go talk to Dr. Irina Scott. Joining us today, discussing her new book, Inside the Lightning Ball, Scientific Study of Lifelong UFO Experiencers, is a UFO experiencer, an investigator, her and author herself, I, Dr. Irina Scott. How are you doing today, Dr. Scott? I'm very glad to be here. And just to give people a little summary, you're not someone who's just had like a UFO experience and then decided to write a book about it, right? Like you've had a long time of experiences um, that, that go back a long time. They go back to my very early childhood, but I had a repressive family and we never talked about them for like a very long time afterwards. <laughs> sure. And so where'd you grow up, first of all? I grew up, uh, actually, I'm on the farm I grew up on now, although I've traveled all over. Um North of Columbus, Ohio, in the middle of Ohio. Okay. So uh, kind of a Midwestern upbringing um, yes. on a farm. Were your, were your parents farmers? Yes, they were. Okay. So you get that kind of salt of the earth thing going on um, with your parents, right? Probably not no-nonsense kind of people. At least that's my, my experience with a lot of different farmers. That was my experience, too. Our farmers, our family didn't even let us up talk about ufos when we were kids <laughs> so you didn't talk about it <laughs> so the idea that you might have an experience was you know probably way outside of the realm of possibility but let's so let's go back let's let's discuss it let's let's start right into it what was your first ufo experience the first thing i talked about in the book was um seeing a lightning ball and that was when i was five years old and i went into a chapter on lightning because i thought that was pretty interesting once i started researching it because scientists don't know anything about lightning either, lightning balls. You're talking about ball lightning, that, that, that strange uh, phenomena that it seems like sometimes people get video of it or anything, but it's something that they can't even recreate in the lab most of the time, right? Yes. I was going to start out and say, if I see something flying through the air that's lit up, I don't automatically think it's a, a UFO. I'm selective and consider what I'm looking at. And so I was saying this was a prosaic lightning ball. But it turned out I had a number of other lightning experiences, so I went into some detail on ball lightning to start with. But my first experience with something that shape and size was ball lightning when I was five years old. But I thought this was prosaic, and but it gave me a good background on what is prosaic and what is weird. So at the time when you were five years old and you see, uh, you know, a ball, like, let, let's set up the scene. Were you in, like, next to your bedroom window? Was it storming outside? Were you in the barn? Like, where exactly were you when, you know, you first saw that? I was at a next-door neighbor's house of relatives, and there was a really bad storm going on. And I was by a window, and my relative was next to me. And I was a lot shorter, of course, being five. And I could almost look straight up. Well, I looked straight up almost. And I saw this basketball-sized ball that was about the color of lightning. And being a five-year-old, I'd never heard of lightning balls or anything else. Of course. 
And so I behaved like a five-year-old and started screaming and shrieking and got away from the window. And then my relatives calmed me down. Now, did anyone else, you know, did you say like, oh my God, there's a ball of lightning outside or a ball of fire or however you say it when you're five, you know, and, and you're freaking out about it, which to be fair, you were five and freaking out, but I'm 40 and I would freak out uh, if I saw a ball lightning outside my window. And so you're over there and did anybody else say like, oh yeah, that's no big deal. Or were the people saying things like, this is just your imagination? No, it, I, I was shorter and so I could look almost straight up from the window and the ball of lightning seemed to be toward the top of the window. But the person beside me was taller and she could see down through the window. And so she didn't see it. And so she gave me the explanation that maybe these are two lightning bolts that ran into each other or something like that. And so anyway, it calmed me down. I was five years old, I believed whatever the, whatever the grown-ups told me. <laughs> and so at the time, though, when you were looking at it, did you have any inkling that it was unearthly or something like that? No. Um, that's something I can compare later events with. Is that After it was over with, I just didn't have any feelings about it. It just seemed like a normal thing. It was a thunderstorm. Did this event spark any of your interest in science or anything, or were you somebody who was always interested in it? I think I was always interested in astronomy ever since I was just a small kid. We were poor, and we had just gotten a radio. We put electricity in and then got a radio. And my parents just listened to particular stations like uh, sort of PBS-type music and things. And so I didn't hear a lot about anything on the radio. And so I didn't have too much experience with anything. I'd never heard of UFOs or lightning balls or anything else. So when was the first time that you had heard maybe about a UFO or even the idea of it or a flying saucer or something that, you know, something coming to visit us? Like, what, do you remember the first time when you're like, oh, yeah, UFOs, I've seen something weird? It was after my sister and I had had a sighting. It was, um, the, I think it was in a magazine, um, maybe the Cornet magazine. And it was several years after we'd had a sighting when I first read about UFOs. But I didn't associate my sighting with UFOs at the time because they were supposed to be like big um, airplanes or something. Mm -hmm. And our first experience was a tiny thing in our bedroom. And we'll get into that for a second. So you had a shared experience with your sister. And my, my sister... Uh, co-host this show a lot and we you know we've always been interested in these kind of things and we've always been searching them out and we've never seen anything like that we've seen a couple of weird stuff but never like a shared experience together that would that would blow my mind uh <laughs> when i was a kid so what, what was the sighting with your sister and did you guys like freak out about it or bond over what like what happened well we didn't know what it was because like i said we hadn't heard of lightning balls or ufos or anything else at that time we, had, we were sleeping in an attic room with slanted walls and different things. And we'd both gone to sleep, and we both woke up. Although we didn't talk to each other, my sister knew I was awake, but I didn't know she was awake. And this little thing was flying around the room. It was about maybe an inch in diameter, and it looked just like really hot metal. It glowed. It was dark, and it was really good weather. There wasn't a storm anywhere, just nice clear weather. And it was flying around the room. And neither one of us remember being scared or anything. Of course, we hadn't heard of aliens or UFOs or anything like that either. And we both just watched it, and it flew around the room, sort of like a random 
browsing type pattern like a butterfly going from tree to tree or something from flower to flower or something and after I watched it a while I realized it was more or less glided guided because we had there were walls that slanted up and furniture in the room and both of us and our beds and everything and it would it wouldn't bump into anything it just flitted like back and forth and up and down and browsed and um, when it came to a wall about uh, or a piece of furniture or something about a foot away from it turned and it, you know I realized this is not something I didn't even at that age I thought it wasn't inanimate I thought it must be animate in some way because it seemed to know where things were so it felt intelligent yeah I mean due to the reason that it avoided everything it didn't fly right into anything it knew where things were the room was dark and there wasn't a reason why it should avoid something. That's an interesting thing you're saying there, I think, because like when you describe your first experience, when you see ball lightning and you see, a, you know, a ball of fire, a ball of, you know, electricity in the sky or in the air next to you, that, I mean, electricity, I mean, might be attracted to certain things and might go towards and away from certain things. But the idea that the electricity would know where the door was, you know, yes. like electricity doesn't know where a door is. Compared to my first experience, the first experience just seemed like, you know, a ball of electricity, whether I knew anything about it or not. But this didn't. This seemed a lot more like it was subjectively intelligent because it would avoid obstacles, but it still could fly up and down and around and back and forth and different things like that. So it wasn't just gliding along in a straight line or anything. It was browsing-like. And it came kind of close to both of us, to our heads. And we both watched it with curiosity. And then it kind of, it was flagging around, sort of like the same height as our head, heads from the floor. And then it sort of went down to the floor. It didn't hit, hit the floor or anything. And flew up. It was on the south side of the room. And it flew up to the ceiling, but it didn't get to the ceiling. It turned before it got to the ceiling. And it sort of right angle turned. And it was no longer browsing. It was going in a straight line. And it went to a um, chandelier in the middle of the room. The chandelier was turned off, and so there shouldn't have been any reason why the electricity should have, why it would have electricity, but flew to the chandelier. The chandelier was round and between two walls, and there was about maybe two or three feet between, maybe two feet between the edge of the chandelier and the walls on both sides. And it just got about, um, like, maybe eight inches from the chandelier without touching anything. It seemed to know where the chandelier was, and it started circling the outside of the chandelier just very smoothly without, I mean, I couldn't figure out any way it knew where the walls of the chandelier was, but it knew to start circling it. It circled and circled, and it seemed to speed up, and then it went down in a spiral, and then we both became, suddenly became terrified at exactly the same time. And both of us started shrieking and screaming. And we tried to run out of the room and we crashed into each other at the stairs and there was a door at the bottom of the stairs and we crashed into it, went screaming to our parents. And they didn't believe us and said, you know, nothing happened. It was, I was real fortunate because there was two of us because if that had just happened to one of us, it would have been totally dismissed. But it happened to both of us. 
I think is interesting is that you both felt terror at the same. So this is the first time you got scared in the experience was at the end of it. And so like you got scared after it spun out from uh, from under the chandelier. Uh-huh. And if you could describe, I mean, I know this is probably a long time ago and stuff, but I'm thinking about that, the, you know, the, when you think about describing the fear, was it that it was malevolent or was it just, just like some, was it the fear of the unknown or that it might hurt you? Like what particular... You know, if you if you can remember and think about your emotion at that time, um, and I'm just interested in like if it elicited the same emotion in two people, you know, two two little girls at the same time. We weren't talking to each other either. Right, like like what kind of fear did you feel? I don't know. It was just, I mean, it wasn't didn't seem like some particular type of fear. It was just absolute fear. It's probably the scariest I ever was in my life, and it wasn't for any particular reason because we'd just been watching it, and suddenly we were terrified. Uh, somebody explained that uh, possibility of what might have happened to me later, and my mother wrote up something unusual. But at the time, it was just terror. I mean, it didn't. It wasn't from any knowledge of anything or anything. It was just like somebody switched a turned on a switch, like in an animal experiment, and turned on the terror switch, and there we were terrified. Yeah, it wasn't due to a reason. And and that's interesting too. Just the uh, you know the idea that the switch was flipped, like a primal instinct gets activated uh, for some reason. Yeah, and uh, since then I've had since the book came out about a month ago I've had several podcasts and discussions, and one man asked me when we got scared, and when we got scared was when it disappeared. And he said maybe it was controlling our minds before that and controlling our fears, and then it disappeared, and suddenly we were released from that. And I don't know, because I didn't feel fear to start with. Yeah, I was just curious. It was just a curious, interesting little thing. But when my mother wrote up her report, I mean, they didn't allow us to talk about it, but anyway, many years later, I was reporting it and writing up reports to the Center for UFO Studies. And my mother at that time would write up a report too. And what she said was that something came in the window and then a little thing flew around and then it disappeared and we were terrified. And that sort of agreed with what the man said, that when it disappeared, it released our terror or something, released our feelings. But I didn't understand it, but it certainly seems strange that we wake up at the same time and both absolutely were terrified out of our minds at the same time. <laughs> right. Well, and you guys both saw the same thing. Yeah. Too, was that, you know, you, you both saw the same thing and then you both felt, uh, you know, these very intense emotions simultaneously. And that automatically makes the story like, oh, my God, that, you know, I can't believe that happened. You know, so these experiences start happening uh, at a very young age. And are they getting into any of the rest of your life? Like, is anything creeping over where you're, you know, you think that if you're not thinking it's UFOs or aliens, could it be, um, you know, if you had a different kind of superstitious upbringing, you might think it was fairies. If you had a different kind of ultra-religious upbringing, you might think it was the devil. Like, was there anything in your uh, you know, that, that bled into the rest of your life where you're like, you know, before you thought about the idea of aliens or the extraterrestrial hypothesis that, you know, any kind of explanation for some of the weird stuff you saw? Well, in that case, I just didn't know for many, many, many years. And this was a small thing in our room. 
and UFOs were presented as large, you know, spacecraft carrying aliens and stuff like that. So it wasn't till about, I think it was the 1990s, I read an article by Jenny Randalls in, I think, the MUFON Journal. And she talked about bedroom visitations of UFOs, very small UFOs, in the bedrooms of children. And she said later, some of these children have sightings, continue to have sightings of, you know, regular UFOs later in life. And it's sort of a pattern. And then, so I wrote the article to the um, International UFO Reporter, and they actually used it as a cover story and drew a picture of us in our bedroom. Oh, but that's then, great. <laughs> but then Jenny Randalls wrote a book called Star Children, and she described our experience along with other people and said that often, that not often, but in some cases, people will see these young children and see these small things. And I think she gave an age range of up to about eight years old that you had to, that generally happened to people younger than that. And then later on in life, they would see UFOs. And we followed that pattern. I don't know, I don't understand the pattern or why, but we seem to be in the pattern of whatever it is. <laughs> so you had these, you know, childhood visitation. You, you've been experiencing, uh, you know, UFO events and unexplained strange things flying around you in the sky since then. But then at the same time, you go into higher education. Uh, like you said before, you had to work really hard for that PhD. And, you know, to get that. But when you think of the realms of academia, they are not very often, you know, UFO friendly. So can you describe your academic background? Um, and so, because that, you know, you take that middle ground of being a kid to then being an adult and the researcher and investigator. You also spent a long time, you know, doing the academic thing. So how did you get into that? Well, I, I don't know if this has anything to do whatsoever with, with UFOs, but I um, always wanted to be an astronomer ever since I can remember, ever since I looked at the stars. But I majored in astronomy, first of all, and started looking for jobs. And it was back in the days when jobs were male only. Sure. And nobody even gave me an application. And so I had to change my major to something else. But I eventually received a PhD from the University of Missouri, the College of Veterinary Medicine in Physiology. And then I had a postdoc at Cornell University. And then I had a professorship at St. Bonaventure University. Uh, I had um, my master's was the University of Nevada, and my bachelor's was the Ohio State University. I first majored in astronomy and then in biology. And so you got to go all over doing that, you know, in academia. It sounds like, you you know, you got to visit a lot of cool places. Yes. Um, well, I, I started out after I finished undergraduate. I tried to get into astronomy again, and I wound up working with satellite photography. I first of all worked as a um, physical scientist cartographer at an aerospace mapping center of the government. It was called the Aerospace Center. And later I transferred to the DIA and I had a PhD level position in research in satellite photography. And part of one of the sections I was in was um, air order battle. And we used aerial photography to look at an area of the world and our work was to identify 
every flying object in the in this area. And so I had a lot of training in aircraft identification and everything else. And um, then I went into, I got my PhD in a di- different subject because I got married and my husband lived in Nevada. And eventually I got a PhD in from the School of Veterinary Science in the University of Missouri. But I also worked in a number of places where UFO work was being done, such as the Tell Memorial Institute, and I was at Wright-Patterson Station there for meetings and different things, and um, for the DIA. And so what, what is the DIA, real quick? Just a, you It's know, the Defense Intelligence Agency. It's sort of like the CIA. Except probably with less assassinations, we'd hope. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but with the DIA, though, so let's say, so I just wanted to establish your bona fides there in the, in the fact that, you know, you... Uh, You've had to do research. You've had to, you know, you've had to prove things. You had to defend your thesis. You, you know, you, you had to do these things in order to get, um, you know, those pieces of paper for your, you know, for your academic record. And, you know, that's important because that leads into credibility of, you know, where we're going to when we talk about things that a lot of people in academia would discredit just right off the bat. Or a lot of scientists are just like, well, that's, you know, ball lightning is, you know, that's not even proven yet, blah, 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 kind of thing. And so we kind of wanted to establish the fact that you've worked in enough fields that require rigorous uh, research and testing and, and, and things like that in order to kind of go where the discussion goes to with this, um, you know, this research into UFOs. And, and you worked for the government. Yes. Identifying aircraft. And that's a... When you think about it, it's funny you say that because it's like, well, you worked for that government identifying aircraft. And, you know, this whole thing is now we're finding things that the government can't identify, that you couldn't identify. You know, when you were doing that stuff at the DIA, was it ever something where you're like, did they ever show you stuff where you're like, I don't know what that is or I can't figure out what that is? Well, I had a weird experience in the DIA is when I was working for the DIA, I had a clearance above top secret. It was a real high clearance is in the news even now and um you have to that's entails a fbi investigation and everything else so i was definitely sane or else i wouldn't have that type of clearance (laughs) right and my sister and i had another sighting then and it isn't i mean i couldn't talk about it because you don't go into a job like that and say oh i see ufos it was the last thing i would have said but um I mentioned the subject of UFOs at work, and I expected everybody to roll on the floor laughing because that's the way scientists do. Well, the other people in my section didn't. They took me serious, and they said that on our satellite photography that we were studying and supposed to identify everything, that they had seen a UFO, and they had reported it to their higher-ups. And I think one of my supervisors was like a GS-14. We were supposed to be the experts on identifying everything in this area of land with the satellite photography. Well, he reported it, the two supervisors reported it, and the higher-ups said, we didn't see anything. And they showed me the pictures and everything else, and it was on two different missions. A mission is when the satellite goes around the world in 90 minutes. And so we, there were two pictures. You could even see them in stereo. And the supervisor said, you didn't see anything. It was a spot on the film. I mean, the higher-ups. And so the supervisor said, yeah, we did. And they took it to specialists. And the specialist said, yeah, that wasn't a spot on the film. 
but our the superiors still said that's a spot on the film, just like we were idiots instead of professionals. And so I thought that was a pretty interesting um, report. I mean, I interpreted it as a, a much higher level of security for UFOs than we were at, and we were at pretty high clearances. Well, the other thing, you know, I think is it's either either they're hiding something or they're trying to hide from the people they report to the fact that they don't know it. It you could know? be. You know, they're like, well, it's just a spot on the film because if we can't explain it, then, you know, then anybody in charge is going to be like, what, what do you mean you can't explain it? Then what is it? Yeah, anybody that knew anything about photo interpretation would have known that that was a spot on the film. Right. Too. <laughs> so it seemed like a ridiculous thing. But that's interesting. So when you bring this up, I mean, people are saying that, yes, there are things that we see in our satellite photography that we can't identify. Mm -hmm. And is there any ever kind of saying that, okay, we can't identify it because it's, you know, it's, it's the latest Soviet technology or whatever, or, you know, they, they, they try to link it to maybe some things that were earth-based rather than something more celestial? Well, they hadn't, usually you have a history of what's been seen in this area and nothing like that had been seen anywhere near the area ever. So there wasn't a history of it. It didn't look like an airplane or anything. It was a round dome-shaped thing. It had moved very slightly between the two photographs. Well, what I think is, is interesting here, though, is that they just, in general, they took it serious. Like you said, you thought that they, you thought they were going to roll around on the floor and be like, come on now. Like, we're, you know, we're doing serious business here. We're trying to, you know, root out spy planes or secret bases or missile installations, things like that. Um, and not, you know, worried about if E.T. can phone home. Because something like that could start a war or something, you know, if they mistook a UFO for an en enemy plane. And my, I won't say me because, you know, I had a Ph.D. position in a high clearance, but my supervisors were who reported it, and they should have been taken very seriously. And, and so how long did you spend at the DIA and, and doing the satellite photography? Was that it? Did you spend a while there or was it a few months? Or And did you come in contact with other people working for the government who were, you know, investigating any kind of this or even had an interest in any kind of this? They, they felt like they could talk to you about it. No, um, I worked in several sections and the uh, Air Order of Battle was a section that that happened in. And I just happened <laughs> see UFO on, you know, possible UFO when I was working in that section. I think I worked for, I was in cartography for about three years and worked for the DIA about three years. And, you know, during that time, of course we've been doing, like, that was that during, like, the Project Blue Book or anything at the time? Or was there any other, uh, you know, did you know of any other government agencies who were working on this kind of stuff? I didn't know... Even though we had had sightings, I had never paid attention to the subject, being from the Midwest and conservative and everything. And, I mean, I'd had other sightings, and so did my sister, but we didn't tell anybody about it until later. But um, some people found out about it in some other sections at the DIA and harassed me. And I wasn't even the one that turned it into a report. <laughs> but, but harassed you in, like, a joking way? Yeah. It wasn't like harassed you, like, take, she knows too much, take her in. Well, I tur it turned out later that um, many years later, I found that the DIA, while I was working there, was investigating UFOs, which is pretty interesting because our report would have gone to the higher-ups. And if 
they wanted to look for UFOs, we would have been the people to do it because we were the people that were looking at the satellite photography could have looked all over the world and seen things. So it's strange they didn't say anything to us. So you had that little UFO, um, you know, when you were at the DIA, you had that in that particular thing. And then you worked in various academic disciplines for a while, and you continued to have experiences every once in a while, right? So, like, how often would you say that you were having experiences, even when you were not writing books about the subject, you were just trying to, you know, do your job and live your life and, you know, do the things that normal people do that maybe aren't in, in the UFO field yet? Well, it's like my sister and I didn't talk about it for years and years and years, and then finally... I decided to become an investigator and started investigating with a group of people and writing up, you know, what I found out. But this is the first time I've published a little bit about our sightings in some places that nobody would read. But I also published some in the scientific literature. And then this last, I wrote, my book was published last year. That's the first time I really come out and said anything about it after all these years. And so, like, what inspired that? So when, when, when did you finally feel comfortable going into, you know, saying, like, okay, I've had these experiences. They've been going on my entire life. They've been happening to my family, and I just can't ignore it anymore. Like, you know, when did you hit that point? When I was writing this book, I had, like I said, I'd published a little bit in places that nobody would read, hardly. But I finally got it all together and published this last book that came out last month, and that's... <laughs> and there we are. I mean, I'm retired and don't have to worry so much about jobs and that sort of thing. Have you found that any of the people from your uh, academic life, have, have they reacted in a certain way? Or if you go to a cocktail party now and you see an old professor friend and they're like, hey, it's Dr. Crazy Pants? Like, is there any, anything like that? Or is it, have you found... a a warm welcome or an indifferent welcome? Like, I'm just interested in... Because um, I always think, like, to me, being a professional weirdo, it's okay because I'm an artist <laughs> kind of thing. But when you in certain professions, that just doesn't go. I haven't discussed it with anybody that I worked with. <laughs> okay, so that that's still coming. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right, well, this is, part, this is your coming out party. We're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. So inside the lightning bowl... You know, you, you told us about two, and you, you talked about your, your experience as five years old, talking about experience when you're a little older. And if you continue to have experiences throughout your life, like what are the different things you saw? And did you have experience with anybody besides your sister? Yeah, I've had several ones with other witnesses besides her. But it was pretty unusual because most of the time with what Jenny Randalls and some of the other people have said about children that have sightings and then adults that have sightings later these are individual people and I don't know if anybody else has had sightings when they were young with somebody and then had adult sightings with the same person but my sister and I did and so what what kind of things would you see you know you, you said you, you saw something like a, a size of a basketball you saw something you know tiny in, in your room um was it stuff in the sky was it stuff you know was it a certain time of night or was there anything in particular with these or or, or any sightings anything that kind of unifies them together like oh yeah i regularly see the, the lightning ball or i regularly see uh you know three different lights in the sky moving in a in something that's not a plane 
everything that happened to us was totally unexpected. I mean, they say people stand outside and watch for UFOs. We didn't do anything like that. Ours was just as unexpected as could happen. But when I was working for the DIA in the Air Order battle, I was living in Washington, D.C., and my sister was going to, for first graduate work, graduate work at Drew University in New Jersey, which is close to New York. And But your sister also went to academics. So you take you know, you take two Ohio farm girls that went out and you know, went for it, maybe in a period where not a lot of women like you said, that women weren't being astronomers and stuff like that. So that's that's pretty cool. Well we didn't get my sister became a missionary and that was more acceptable. I went into science, and that wasn't acceptable at all to my parents. But I was just interested, and I went it plowed ahead regardless. So we both um, didn't turn out like your typical farm girl that gets married in high school and everything like that. Right. But um, what happened to us was really a weird experience. Um, I was in Washington. We decided to see the eastern United States since we were both on the East Coast by then. And so anyway, I t- took two co-workers and drove up to my sister's place at Drew University and took some pictures of the co-workers and everything. And then we were going to Boston. Well, we drove up to Boston, and it was still daylight. And so we decided to drive around some more and see some more New England states. And so we went up Route 3 from some distance into New Hampshire, and I took some pictures along the way. Uh Years later, I realized we were on the same path that the Betty and Barney Hill abduction oh. had taken place. So we yeah, drifted the original. <laughs> right along that road, which is interesting. But we came back to Boston, and it was getting dark by then. And we looked around. We couldn't find a motel. And so we decided to go out around the outer belt and start looking. So we were driving west out of Boston, and we saw this thing south of us and I wasn't too paying attention to it much because I was driving but my sister kept saying this is odd this is weird something's wrong here and I kept dismissing it and saying it's a helicopter but it was real obvious that it was something odd and then at that time both of us told each other that we'd had other sightings and I mentioned the thing in our bedroom too and that was the first time we'd ever told each other that we had seen anything because we just came from a repressive attitude sure. in our family. And so I turned south on Route 95, and this th- this bright light thing was going ahead of us, and it was blinking. It was really bright white color, and you could see a lot of airplanes, and there was an airport uh, to the southwest uh, of us. You could see the airplanes coming in and landing and things like that, and the airplanes looked just like airplanes. But this was totally different. It was much lower altitude, and it was just a bright white light. And my sister kept saying, this is something unusual. And I kept saying, oh, it's a helicopter blinking its landing lights. Being a scientist, I was logical and everything. Sure. I'd never seen anything like it, but you know, I still explained it. It's a helicopter. So we were arguing as we drove along, and we came to a well. The west area, the area west of our car was wooded. And so we came to, I was driving along, and in the woods, there was this ball of, it it looked like, uh, sort of like a basketball. It was 
pretty close to the to the car, and it looked like a piece of glass that had lights on the inside, and the lights were going to a spectrum of all different colors of red and all different colors of blue. And I thought, what on earth is this thing? And suddenly the inside of the car lit up in green. And I remember asking my sister, what on earth is going on here? Because I just couldn't imagine. And the inside of the car was lit up in green. And I couldn't see green anywhere. You know, you'd think if the inside of your car lights up in green, you'd see a green beam someplace. Yeah. Well, I couldn't see a beam of light. The thing on the by the road wasn't green. And I think if other people's car lit up in green, I would have noticed. And I just saw nothing, no reason why our car lit up in green, but it did. And then we kept on going. And my sister kept saying, this thing is odd. And finally, she starts screaming. At if me. I saw like glass with like a like a flying disco ball or something like that, I'd probably be like, "That's odd too." Yeah. Well, it, I don't know why I didn't stop, but I think it was because my sister and I were watching this other thing too, and I think it was because I was looking for a hotel and I didn't take her serious, and I kept explaining to her that if we were looking at a UFO, that all the newspapers and all the uh, TVs and the police and everything else would be out looking for it, looking at it, so we couldn't possibly be seeing a UFO. And so finally, as we were driving along, she began screaming at me to pull over because it was going to pass over top of us and cross the road, cross the freeway. And so I pulled over and got out of the car, and she said at that time that the inside of the car lit up again. I didn't see it, but she was looking across the car, and I was either looking out the window or out of the car. And she said the inside of the car lit up with a strange light and that she thought it, the big thing had shown a light inside her car. And so I was still thinking it was a helicopter, and I was going to say, you know, this is a helicopter. Right. And I got out of the car, and I saw this meteor way off in the distance. And then right where it was, this big thing came over the road. And it's hard to tell at night um, how close or far or big anything was, but it had what looked like seven big square windows. And at the time, we had a lot of experience looking at blimps and blimps with lighted sides and things because our farm was along, a, our farm had a freeway through it that blimps followed, and we were very used to seeing blimps, day and night and colored and things. And this wasn't anything like a blimp. It was a big thing that had seven square windows along the side and two little lights, one on each end, a red and a green one, but I don't know which one is was on which side and it was totally soundless and we could hear the airplanes up above it and we could talk to each other but it made no noise it was very uh slow going and it had a blinking pattern of like the like the first three might blink twice and then all seven might blink and then the last four might blink and we kept watching it and thinking why can't I see anything inside it? It was just like the inside was full of just white light, just really bright light. Um, and so I was just thrilled to death. And I thought, I'm go. I had a, a high speed film in my trunk, and a Polaroid camera in the back of the car. And for this was 1968, and so you didn't have videos or anything else. Sure, you can just pop out your phone and be like, check this out. Right. <laughs> yeah, you couldn't do that. And it took it took a while to load the um, the Polaroid camera because you have to do a lot of procedures to get loaded. 
but I thought, you know, I'm going to get the only, the world's only picture of the inside of a UFO. And I just thought this was fantastic. And so I was busy. If I had thought it was a UFO beforehand, I'd have loaded my camera, but I didn't. And so I was loading my camera. And this big thing was going very slowly over us. And then a truck driver drove up and parked in front of us and came back. And just as I was ready to take the picture, he stood right beside me. And being a man, I was kind of scared of him. Sure. And he asked what we were doing. And you're not very relaxed around strange men in the dark at night and anything. And so I didn't say UFO or anything like that. I just pointed at it. And then he rotated around and pointed his head in exactly the opposite direc- direction, about the same altitude, and said, I don't see anything. And I thought, boy, this is weird. And I was scared to take a picture. And so then he rotated back around and asked me the same question. And I pointed again. There was an airport nearby, and I just thought I'd point it out like an airplane and ask him what it was. And so he did the same thing. He rotated around and pointed his head exactly opposite, looked up at the same altitude and said, I don't see anything. And then he rotated back toward me. I mean, he did this twice. And then he pointed to his head and went back to his truck where he stayed watching us. And it just occurred to me recently that, since I wrote the book, that he had to know where it was because he couldn't face in the opposite direction if he didn't know where it was. So when he, you know, if you point at something and somebody can't see it, they look around. Well, he didn't do that. He just pointed in the opposite direction and said, I don't see anything. And so I knew he saw it, but I didn't figure that out until he said something about it in the book. And I just recently thought of that. But let's just take that experience for a second and say, number one, you're sharing the experience with your sister. So there's two people seeing it. Uh-huh. Uh, number two, there's more than one craft or something. So you're seeing the thing in the sky. You're seeing uh-huh. something illuminating the inside of the car. And you're seeing the disco ball. Not, I know not the disco ball, but the piece of glass with the different colors inside rotating to the side. And so you've seen all these things while you're looking at the, the original one, the, the light in the sky. And then the, the seven window gets close enough that you can see seven windows. And as soon as you're going to take a picture, some weird trucker shows up, says it doesn't see anything, and acts like a total creepazoid. Okay, so this happens. What's going through your heads at the time? Like, you know, did you think, like, is this guy being controlled by whoever's in that ship? Is he sent here to scare us? Like, what's, what's his deal? Well, I, I saw, while I was watching the, while we were watching the big thing, I saw the little globe, and then we drove on by it, and the light in the car disappeared, and then we drove to where we stopped, and where the big thing came over the road, and my sister saw the light inside the car again. But um, at that time, I had paid no attention to UFOs, and so... For all I know, it was just a coincidence that these things happened. Now I know more about it, and I think, yeah, these probably fit a pattern of, you know, and went together. But at the time, I wasn't even putting everything together as related to UFOs. And um, it took me a while, like several years, to figure out this is all one, probably one sighting. The whole thing fits together. But at the time, I just thought maybe it was a coincidence that I saw the thing along the road and the car lit up in the inside of the car lit up and stuff okay so you you were kind of creeped out by the guy who you just showed up yeah. what, are you, what are you guys doing so you had that feeling but was there anything like of, of any visceral feelings that you got from looking at the craft itself 
uh, like you, you know, like the, like the fear your sister and you felt when the little hot metal ball when you were kids disappeared. No, it's very strange because it seems like I should have. It seems like we should have been scared. And it was kind of like the beginning of our sighting of the ball. We weren't scared. We were just, we would ask each other questions. How many windows do you count? Which ones are blinking? You know, that sort of thing. We just kept asking each other questions to see, and we were seeing the same thing. But then um, I really wanted to get a picture of it. And so there was a hill, and I was afraid due to being near a freeway that we might, that I might get lens flares in my if I took a picture. And so for some reason, I ran up the hill. And it wasn't until years later when I we didn't influence each other too much, and we didn't see each other for five years after that. But um, when I read her report years later, she said about the same time I was talking to the man or trying to take a picture that the object had suddenly just gone to another place. Uh, I suppose been so fast that you couldn't see it. And I didn't realize that when it happened. And I ran up the hill and actually did get a picture of it. And it was sort of complicated with the Polaroid. I mean, it's nothing digital or anything like they have today. It's just a mechanical picture. But I did get a picture and I still have it and I still have the camera. But I ran back down the hill and looked at the picture. And then the object began to circle the airport. And if I had been a UFO investigator, this is something I've investigated, but I wasn't. It began to circle in this real weird pattern of it would be south, it would go semicircle north and turn its lights on for about 30 degrees, turn them off, turn them back on for about 30 degrees, like maybe from 60 to 30 degrees, and then be directly north at zero or 360 degrees. And then it traveled so fast you couldn't see it in another semicircle until it went south. And then it would st- it would turn its lights off and back on, off and on to the north. And it kept doing this. And part of it was so fast that you couldn't see it. It was just like I would remember it went through half this circle. It almost sounds like it's casing the joint. I don't know what it was doing, but um, it was really weird. And, you know, I thought later, if I had been a UFO investigator, I should have asked the airport if they saw it because exactly we right, saw right. it. But then, well, I did ask after a while, but they said they didn't have records that go back that far. But they probably wouldn't have said anything anyway, so I might have not lost anything anyway. But we were next to our car, and this truck was parked in front of us. And for some reason, I thought it would go the other way when it left. We'd been following south, and so I decided to get on the freeway and turn our car around at an intersection so we'd be heading north. I I don't know why I thought it was going to head north, but that's what I did. And so I got on the freeway to turn around, and the truck driver got right in, right behind us, turned his bright lights on, and began to follow us. And every time I changed um, lanes or anything, he did the same, and he just kept beaming his bright lights right down into my mirror, and I was blinded, and he was chasing us, I think, because we couldn't get rid of him, and I thought we were going to get killed because I was finally driving as fast as I possibly could, and he was right behind me with the bright lights beaming in my mirror, and I was blinded, so I decided the way to try to get rid of him was to suddenly turn off the left-hand side of the road. And if something had been 
on the right-hand side coming up faster, we had again been killed. But it worked, and so far as I know, I got rid of him. And then I turned around, turned the car around at the intersection, wherever it was, and came back north. And the object was still circling the airport. I think it circled about 20 minutes or something. And we got up about even with it. And then it did head north, kind of northwest. And so we followed it, and I came to the same place where the ball of light had been in the woods, and it was still there. It might have been up in the air or something, because I could see it, and the inside of the car turned green again. And so we kept on going, and it, it the roads in general went north and south and east and west, but it kind of kept going northeast, and so we had to zigzag from roads. And finally, we wound up on this real deserted road that had just, it was gravel. It was about one lane. The houses were too far apart to even see. And you wouldn't be able to turn around <laughs> if it landed sure. or something. I'd have never been able to turn around. And it just, it was going about 40 miles an hour and low. But I couldn't keep up with it because the road was so bad. And so I turned around, came back, and um, we went back to Drew University, and um, later I talked to Bud Hopkins, we both did, and he asked about missing time, and we could have had missing time. I wasn't sure, because we both forgot our watches, but by estimation, I think we had missing time. And so I stayed at um, my sister's dormitory that day, and we tried to get some sleep, and I was supposed to pick up the uh, men that rode with me, and they said they couldn't get us, and we had been very careful about trying to get in contact with them, and they knew where we were and everything, because I had my a picture of them standing in front of the door and talking to Sue, but they were real mad at me when I went back to Washington the next day, I mean, the next day at work, but then something else really weird happened even <laughs> after that. Well, this whole night sounds like, like an like, so it's you and your sister having an incredible night of seeing weird things. You might have had missing time. And there's more. Yeah. All right. The next day on Sunday, I was supposed to drive back and pick up my coworkers and go back to Washington. Well, I waited most of the day, and they never contacted me. And when I did get back to Washington, they were just steaming mad and said they couldn't get a hold of us. And I don't know why, because they knew who we were. They knew our names. They knew where we were. They had the telephone number and everything else. And if we left the room, we asked my sister's roommates to listen for the phone. And so anyway, on Sunday night, <laughs> this is still hard to talk about. I had another weird experience of a poltergeist. And I got back about 11 on, it was um, Sunday night. And, and went, this is you, you're back in Washington, D.C. then? Yeah, uh-huh. And went to bed, and I began to hear somebody walking in my room. And this is pretty ridiculous. But I, I would hear walking like somebody's walking in my room, like a man walking with shoes on that made noise. And so when I'd hear it, I would try to reach out. I mean, I was terrified, but I'd try to feel it or something to find out what was making the noise. And I couldn't. And even though I was terrified, I went to sleep, which is really weird. But then... I woke up and the alarm went off and I thought it was morning and I started fixing breakfast and then I realized it was dark and it was 1.30 and so 
I was just terrified, but I went back to sleep. And every hour, right on the half hour, the alarm went off again and again and again until 5.30 in the morning. So the alarm's just randomly going off on you? No, it was going off 1.30, 2.30, 3.30, 4.30, right on the spot. Not randomly, but, you know, but you're not setting it for an hour. You're setting it for, you know, the time you're supposed to wake up or whatever. And so, for some reason, the alarm's going off and waking you up. Yeah. It was, you had to manually switch the alarm, and the little thing was broken off, and I usually switched it with pliers because I couldn't uh, turn it that well. It was set right exactly on like 1.30, 2.30, 3.30, which had been very hard to do, and my hands weren't sore from trying to twist it, and so I couldn't figure out. It was a mechanical alarm, so you had to set it for each time, and I couldn't figure out how it got reset each time. And then in the morning, I was sitting there, not moving. I was terrified, and I was afraid I, was, I had gone insane, and I was afraid I'd lose my job. And so I was trying to figure out how to get by at work without talking to anybody and, you know, rehearsing that. And my toothbrush flew across the room. And then everything was pretty much over with, but um, nothing like that happened again. Well, I, that's great. Oh, so you have something where... I mean, like a psychokinetic activity, you know, like it sounds yeah. like a poltergeist. Somebody's messing with your alarm clock when you can't. Mm-hmm. Somebody's throwing your stuff around. This is after seeing a whole bunch of weird stuff the night before. Yes. And I had my sister with me when I, everything else happened. And so I knew, you know, that somebody else could see it. But this happened by itself. And years and years and years later, I read that people that have close encounters sometimes have poltergeists after that. But at the time, I just thought I'd gone insane. I mean, I was scared to death. I was going to walk in to work, and they would figure out I was insane, and I would get fired right on the spot. <laughs> well, you know, you it's it's you know, you talk about your emotions at the time too. When you're thinking like, I, I thought I was going crazy. I can't believe this stuff that was happening, and you didn't have an explanation for it. Was there other sometimes with these kinds of activities, people have smells? There was any weird smells? You smell brimstone or sulfur or anything like that? No. Okay. All right, just double checking on that. I was, when people have UFO experiences now, I check in to see if they've had some <laughs> weird smells. After we, a great book called The Brimstone Deceit kind of goes into these unusual aromas that people have at these experiences sometimes. But the idea is like poltergeists are not associated usually with UFOs, and sometimes they are, but not, you know, in our head, we don't think of it like that a lot of times. And so you have these incredible experiences, and these are all so far, we talk about them, we're talking about visual things, strange things, stuff that there is not, you know, a ready explanation for. Have you had any chance to, when you think about the experiences in your life and your system, when you're talking about from your childhood, is there any sort of rhyme or reason to it, do you think? Has anything ever, you know, has have you gotten any kind of uh, illumination as to what these different phenomena could be, have wanted with you guys? Well, I know it'd sell my book better if I did. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> right. that's no, the secret. I don't have any idea what's going on. <laughs> Well, and that's fair, though. I mean, so nobody ever took you aboard the ship and said, like, you know, here's here's the plan, Doc. Like, you know, here's what we're planning on doing. We got this whole hybrid thing happening. We needed your help on it. You know, you've never had that kind of experience where any kind of explanation has been given to you. No, not at all. I've read, you know, 
other people saying that they've talked to beings and everything else, but no explanation came to me, and I don't have any feelings about it either. Neither one of us do. And so it's just that kind of high strangeness that you yeah. experienced. And then you're also seeing manipulation of emotions and stuff like that. Like you said before, like years later, like, oh, you got scared after the thing disappeared. or And we see the manipulation of the guy who stopped by the side of the road. Have you seen other kinds of things like that where you've had an experience where people seem to have been acting abnormally? Uh, let me think. I don't think so. I think that was about the only time just talking to that man that seemed totally weird. I don't remember any other time, except that I think that my sister and I seem to have the wrong emotions sometimes. Were you guys, I mean, the wrong emotions as in you guys are scared when you shouldn't be or not scared when you should be or angry when you should be happy or kind of during an experience or something? Yeah, when we, uh, the first time when we saw the thing, we both got scared at the same time. We both woke up at the same time. That seemed strange. And then um, when we saw that one in Boston, it seemed like we should have been scared because I'd seen some UFOs before that, and I was terrified. And this time I wasn't scared at all, and that seemed a little bit strange too. Okay, interesting. So when you said you saw a UFO before and you were terrified, just get a quick description of that experience. Were you with your sister at the time? Well, no, this was a different one. Um, it was also when I was a young kid. And we were out in the country, and our porch was like a big rock, a big flat rock. And we didn't have air conditioning or anything, and I was sleeping outside on the rock. And I woke up and looked north, and this big orangish ball that looked like um, metal was coming toward me. And it, um, I was terrified, and then it flew very slowly and was directly over me. And right then, every dog in the neighborhood suddenly began to bark, and her own dog was inside where she couldn't have possibly seen it or anything. But she just, it sounded like she was tearing up the kitchen or something. And then it flew on over. It didn't stop, I don't think. And at that, I was just absolutely terrified, but I didn't say anything. I didn't go in the house or anything because I was afraid my parents would say, you're lying and beat me up. And so it was years and years and years before I said anything about that either. But that seemed like the right emotions. Of course, I'd heard of UFOs by then, too, which might have made a difference. And I think that um, for some reason, whatever's out there, who it is, it could be ETs, people from the future, could be fairies, who knows? Yeah. Whoever it could be, they're taking an interest in you for some reason. And has your sister also had experiences outside of you know the, the stuff you've had together? Uh-huh. And so if you guys have any other siblings who've experienced have, any of this? We have a brother, but I don't think he's had anything. My mother had some weird experiences with lightning balls. But, um, yeah, I remember one time my mother, um, like I said, she's conservative. she was conservative and didn't talk about UFOs. But I remember once um, on a farm when we were kids, we had a windbreak back of the house, and then the chicken house was in back of that. And of nights after dark, we would go out and close the chickens. And so one night, my mother went out to close it. We all took turns so that the foxes couldn't eat them and things like that. Sure. And so my mother went out to close the chickens. And after a while, she came back, and she was white as a sheet. And she didn't say anything. She just came in the kitchen and sat down. And 
you know, just gray and white. And finally, my father asked her, did you close the chickens? And she said, no. And um, he asked why. And she said, there were big, um, there were balls of light in all the trees. And so my father said, were they in pairs? Because I guess he thought they were eyes, you know, maybe birds were flying or something. And she said, no. And she was absolutely terrified, but we never talked about it again. <laughs> okay. That, it's interesting. It seems that it happens to people a lot where if something amazing or incredible, you know, happens and um, they kind of just forget about it. Well, I don't know if she forgot about them. I didn't forget about it, but we never talked about it again. But the banality of existence takes over. Yeah. Just, <laughs> you, you go back to every day. Um, but, okay, so you, your mother, your sister, and then you've got a brother and a dad. So, mm-hmm. so the females in your family, or the, the women in your family, seem to be something's out there looking at them. It, that's what it seemed like. Because I think dad would, like I said, we were conservative and everything, but I think if anything like that happened to dad, he would have said something. Right, or grabbed the shotgun. Huh? Yeah. yeah, what's out there? Come on. <laughs> so that is something incredible. Well, I encourage everybody who's interested in this kind of thing, because um, we could talk about more of your experiences and everything, but uh, next time you release a book or you want to talk about UFOs, please let us know, because I could listen to your experiences all day here. Doc. And we recommend everybody you can go to irenascott.com we'll have links in the show notes othersidepodcast.com slash 206 links in the show notes and you should check out Inside the Lightning Ball a scientific study of lifelong UFO experiencers and it starts with Irina herself and the experiences we had and just a fraction of them which she shared today so I want to thank you very much well thank you it was great to be here Well, that's pretty cool hearing firsthand from an actual UFO experiencer. Yeah, and the thing is what I like about her is that she doesn't try to put an explanation on it. Like she's been seeing UFOs her entire life. Okay, that's one thing. Uh, she's got experiences that she shared with her sister. That's not that's cool. She doesn't try to say that the men from Venus were they had some kind of plan for us. <laughs> It just always makes it more believable to me when somebody's just saying, like, this is the crazy stuff I saw. It's not like she tried to explain it. It reminds me a little bit of the same attitude that Travis Walton had when we talked to him. Right. He's not telling us that they have a special message for the human race. What he's saying is, man, I saw some crazy stuff and I can't explain it. Yeah, he just told what he saw and said, I don't know what it was, but this is what happened to me and... And then I found that very believable as well. That's right. So I I really think that uh, Dr. Scott's story is fascinating. And I mean, she's been seeing stuff her entire life. So when you start when you're a little girl and you start seeing stuff all the way through and you see it with your family members and then other people might not see it. Well, that kind of what inspired this week's song, because I think that's the kind of thing that can drive you crazy. So like, Wendy, if you and I are at some kind of... um, You know, let's say we're at some kind of haunted hotel or whatever, like we just were last week in Matt. Let's say we're at a haunted hotel and (laughs) we both are in the room looking at the same thing and I see something and you don't. Um, Yeah. Yeah, that would lead you to question my sanity. Right. And you might even question your own sanity. Right. Because why am I seeing something that no one else can? And I think about that with the people that have seen these things their entire life. You know, to them, it's just like, well, I've always had UFOs in my life and there's more people like that. Actually, we made a joke about Ryan Sprague before, uh, but he talks about that in his Somewhere in the Skies book. 
He talks about um, this guy in, in San Diego named Christo who's been seeing UFOs his entire life, and they made a they made a, a Netflix documentary about it. And he does not try, doesn't try to explain it. He just says, "You come out with me, you're gonna see something strange in the sky that you can't explain." And even the documentary cameras get it. And so, I, I feel like Dr. Irina's story is much the same. For some reason. UFOs are attracted to her or she can see behind the veil or she can see the machinery elves behind the scenes working on us that we can't. And, and so that's what the that's what the, this week's song is about because it's the idea that, well, you might be able to see things that other people can't and that might bring you down sometimes. But when you feel like that and you feel like you just can't take it, all that's left is just keep looking up. The sky is blue to the flight of a bumblebee Well, I don't think you can But I don't doubt you believe That you can trust your senses And you're not crazy Sometimes it's more than I can handle Sometimes it's more than I can take Sometimes I am a bad example Of what I need when I'm gonna break Keep looking up There's something that you know is real Something that you've seen your whole life But something no one else can feel Would you hold it as your secret And always keep your truth concealed Or would you let yourself be ridiculed With a big reveal Sometimes it's more than you can handle Sometimes it's more than you can take Sometimes you are a bad example Of what you need when you're gonna break Keep looking up for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Ooh, we're not done yet, though, Mike. Absolutely not. <laughs> we talked about it at the beginning of the show, how excited we are. Oh, yeah. It's time to talk about it a little bit more because this is the segment of the show that we dedicate to our Patreon community members. That's right. And we love them so much. Wonderful people. Yep. And every week we do a shout out to Dr. Ned, who's at the Patreon level, where he gets a shout out in every single episode of the See You on the Other Side podcast. You too can be like the good doctor and get a shout out in every single episode. You can find that at othersidepodcast.com slash donate. But the thing is, all of our Patreons are invited to join us for the Patreon hangout that we do every month where we talk about paranormal topics. This month, we had like everybody watches a show, and then now we're talking about that show and kind of going in, doing yes. some depth, and everybody gets a chance to uh, – it's, it's like a book club for real-life paranormal stuff. And it's online, so everyone is welcome regardless of where you are. You don't have to live in our, our hometown of Madison here to come to the Hangout. You can just do it from the comfort of your own living room or bedroom or 
basement or wherever you like. That's right. Now, it helps if you do speak English because our conversations are in English. But you can be anywhere in the world and join us with the magic of Google Hangouts as long as you have internet connection. Uh, you can join us and enjoy the conversation. And we'd like to do That's right. And the thing is, the more Patreons we get, the more of these we will do. So right now we're doing it once a month, and we got a great community of people we talk with, and we try to share and have discussions about the shows and paranormal news and great songs and things we all into. Everybody talks about their favorite paranormal songs and movies and stuff. But the thing is, we'll do more of these with more Patreons. So if you guys want to join the community... Where can they do that? Othersidepodcast.com slash donate. Come on and join us. Yeah. See you Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central. And thank you for listening. The men from Venus were, they had some kind of plan for us.